Hello, chatters. Happy New Year. It's Lee Sales here without Annabelle Crabb. I hope everybody had a wonderful Christmas or as wonderful as you can have in these crazy times. I last saw Crab at our Canberra show at the start of December and uh, I made it home to Queensland. She made it home to South Australia. I'm now on the south coast of New South Wales. I've lost track of where she is now. But we're hoping for a reunion in the Hawkesbury in a couple of weeks' time with Gwen and Murph and our families, which will be really fun, but trying to not get our hopes up too much because you just can't at the moment. So unfortunately, because of our travel and because of our schedules, we probably won't get to record our first proper podcast for the year until February. So um, it'll be a bit of a wait. So in the meantime, what I have to offer for you today is a special bonus bonus episode, and it has a very special guest, like Heather Locklear when she used to be on Melrose Place, very special guest. And this person is a good friend of mine and a wonderful Australian actor and a fantastic musician. So... What it's going to be about this episode in its entirety is the Peter Jackson Beatles documentary series Get Back, which is a three-part, seven-hour series on Disney Plus about the making and the recording of the album Let It Be. Now, this has been weighing on my mind because I've been looking so forward to watching this and I want to talk about it and I know that Annabelle Crabb has zero interest in watching it and even less interest in hearing me bang on about it. So... I've been sort of feeling like, oh God, how am I going to get around this problem? If you, I should interrupt here and say, if you're in the Annabelle Crab camp, best that you just depart now. Just head off, go and do some gardening, go and make some crack, and we'll see you in a few weeks when normal podcasting resumes. If you think you'd like to hear in detail about Get Back, stick around and let me tell you how my um, guest came to be roped into it. So I happened to be talking to my friend this morning and we were chatting about various things and got talking about Get Back, which I finished watching last night. And it was just such an enjoyable conversation. I suddenly thought, you know what? I should do this podcast with him. I should do an episode with him and then not have to subject Annabelle Crabb to hearing about it. So I quickly texted Crabb and said, would you be cool with this? She said, sure. I said to my friend, what do you think of this crazy idea? He went, yep, do it. Let's do it right now. So fired up the gear and we immediately recorded. So hence the audio is terrible. So I apologise in advance, but I know chatters are kind of used to it. So my friend is a lifelong Beatles fan and an expert, I think, in all things Beatle. Um, He is a superb Australian actor. He is an excellent musician himself. Uh, And I've interviewed him on 7.30 back in 2011. Uh, And he is my lovely friend, none other than Mr Guy Pearce. Thank you, Lee. Thanks for having me. Um, I might question your use of the word expert. Uh, I will agree with you uh, on perhaps the idea of me being the biggest Beatles fan, particularly uh, when there's only two of us on the call. Um, I'm certainly the biggest Beatles fan in this house. Um, But as far as being an expert, uh, I I often find myself uh, outdone by others who who know far more than I do. But I'm very happy to chat about the Beatles at any given time, and particularly at the moment when uh, there's clearly a new film uh, in the uh, stratosphere that we're all sort of, you know, tripping over ourselves about. Now, before we talk about um, that, what are the origins of your Beatles fandom? Well, all I remember really is that as a kid, uh, my mum and dad, uh, I mean, dad was around for a few years, um, they had a couple of Beatles albums and would play them, so I would hear these great songs, and it was a sort of a mixture of things, and they had um, 
a couple of those kind of sort of best of albums uh, where you see the Beatles uh, leaning over a balcony of a particular hotel and they're sort of, you know, from a group of years and then they released another album which was sort of a best of album. Uh, I forget what the particular years were. Maybe it was 62 to 65 and then perhaps 66 to 69, something like that. I can't remember. Um, I should know that, being a Beatles fan. See, that's why I'm not an expert. Um, I feel like I've called you on, on here under false pretenses, you know. That's quite all right. That's quite all right. Uh, and so it, they just got under my skin from a really early age. And the first really sort of incredible moment for me as a Beatles fan when I was young was that my mother, who clearly realised that I was a Beatles fan, bought me on vinyl the Beatles box collection for my 14th birthday or 13th birthday uh, back in uh, 1980, something like that, 81, I guess. Um, and, of course, I just poured over the albums like a crazy fan read all the liner notes listened to all of them uh non-stop and really just embedded them into sort of into my psyche leaning particularly towards the later material um i have a great appreciation for the early stuff but the second half of their career really was what i was drawn to and what sort of undid me and particularly John Lennon, I think. And the White Album, I think, is your favourite, isn't it? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I, 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 there are times when I would say Let It Be is my favourite favorite album, and I, there are times when I'd say Abbey Road. But I think it sort of, it sort of circulates between the White Album, um, you know, uh, Sgt Pepper. That, really, those last four or five albums... I just sort of swim about in and, and, and obviously the influence of George Martin and I think the sort of the experimentation, particularly, I mean, I love Rubber Soul and I love Revolver, but I think once they sort of broke free uh, from the constraints of being the pop band that they originally were uh, and started to experiment and basically play things backwards and kind of just do all sorts of random stuff, I was like... Yes, just I want to go on this ride with you. This Everything you're doing is incredible. It was amazing watching Get Back um, and getting to see George Martin. And it, it, it was funny because he's kind of, I think he's about a decade older than them. And so he still looks like quite a conservative gentleman from 1950s um, England, you know, with the, with the suit and the very conservative-looking haircut, and he's quite an elegant man. And then they look, you know, as we know them in their kind of later years, where they look kind of arty and, and um, you know, not at all conservative. Well, well, it's true. It's a really good point. I mean, interestingly, in that film, Get Back, which, of course, <clears throat> I know, as all uh, Beatles fans do, uh, I know that footage originally from the Let It Be film, uh, which was shot, you know, uh, you know, at that time and was released uh, as, a, as a Lindsay Michael Hogg film uh, called Let It Be. Um, and strangely, or and I don't quite know all the details. I used to know these details a lot more, but but George Martin was was taking more of a back seat as a producer during those sessions. Um, someone will correct me on this, but I'm forgetting the prime sort of engineer producer during those sessions. But George Martin is clearly there as the overseeing producer. But I kind of think that he's he's a little more 
he's he's quieter perhaps during these sessions than he might have been during Sergeant Pepper and 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 the you know the nine or ten albums that came before that. Um, I'm not entirely sure why, but he certainly exudes a, a wonderfully uh, sensitive and authoritative uh, quality that that. You see the Beatles quietly, one by one, going up to him saying, well, do you think this or do you think that or should we do this or should we do that? And he'll he'll give a very discerning sort of nod or nay uh, at very particular times and you know that they utterly respect him for it. And we all know as fans that he really was the fifth Beatle. So, you know, his influence is, is, is just sort of endless, really. So... I mean, I absolutely love to get back. You're in a unique position because you have seen Let It Be and then now you've also seen the kind of seven or so, seven or eight hours of this. I mean, what were your overall sort of thoughts of Get Back? Well, I firstly was very excited and, and in fact, it might have been you, Lee, who actually put me on to <laughs> let me know that, that this was actually being done. I was completely in the dark because I guess a lot of us, as we were swimming around in the sort of, the, the weird maelstrom of, of, of COVID over these last couple of years, I wasn't really aware of what was happening in the world. And as I say, I think it was you who said, uh, are you aware that there's a new, you know, Peter Jackson Beatles film going on? And I, and I just instantly flipped out, saw that trailer, realised that I recognised all that footage, knew what Peter Jackson was doing. He, he grabbed hold of that 50-odd hours of footage and was scouring sort of through it, colorizing it, choosing new bits. And it was interesting to see that sort of five minute description of his, which basically indicated that the original release of that footage, which was called Let It Be, uh, kind of focused on, I suppose, the difficulties that the Beatles had with each other. Um, whereas what he wanted to do was sort of, um, enlighten us and, and, and show the more three-dimensional um, perspective and, and allow us to see that these guys were still having a lot of fun with each other. There's no question that, you know, there were tensions, as I'm sure there are with any album and I'm sure there are with any rock band uh, where creative, you know, genius clashes with creative genius. I find that myself often uh, when I'm on set. Uh, my genius just really gets in the way of everyone else's. Um, <laughs> but it was what was really important, I think, for Peter Jackson, and I think what's wonderful for, for us as an audience uh, is to see that, as I say, they were really having a good time with each other as well, and particularly once they got out of Twickenham Studios, which I have to say, where I am right now, are just down the road. So, of course, I, and I've worked at Twickenham before, so knowing that they'd actually been in there is, is always quite enticing whenever I'm, whenever I'm in there or going by. Um, but once they got out of there, once they sort of broke free of those shackles and got into Apple and started recording the music they wanted to record, and you get to see the joy that they had. And funnily enough, when you watch Get Back, you see Lindsay Michael, Michael Lindsay Hogg, you know, trying to steer the, the, the footage, trying to steer this documentary in a particular direction, which is, of course, the direction that the Let It Be film ended up, which is the drama of them not always getting on with each other, whereas clearly Peter Jackson, as I say, wanted to show a more colourful uh, perspective. And 
I think that was the thing for me. I mean, literally, you see the footage has been colorized in this modern day and age. And Peter Jackson, obviously, with his technology, is able to, you know, transform that footage from 1968, 69 into a more modern realm and make it look wonderful. But also we get to see the more colourful side of these characters rather than just the the dour, argumentative, you know, Paul's just telling George what to do and that's all there is to it. I mean, there's no doubt that we see that as well. We see George leave the band and we see them come back together and, you know, we see the trials and tribulations. But it was what Peter Jack- it was what drew Peter Jackson to it in the first place. He said initially, I don't want to do this if we just want to recreate what's been done before. And I don't want to do this if I find that all 58 hours are them arguing with each other. So thankfully he saw and we get to see um, the joy that exists amongst these young men who are all, we have to remember, they're 29, 28, 27. They're kids, you know, who are brilliant and having a kind of a great time together yeah that that's very clear and so it's rich because you see that they have great affection for each other and even when they're disagreeing like there's this scene in part one where mccartney's um you know giving some instructions and george harrison pushes back against it a little bit and um mccartney says straight away look i know that i really annoy you i know that you find me annoying i try really hard to not do it Um, I can't help it. And then Harrison's kind of trying to put his point of view across and then it ends after they have this exchange with Harrison saying, just tell me what you want me to do. I just want to make you happy. And it's, it's really interesting watching it because... If you can let go of the fact that you're watching The Beatles, which is, of course, you know, really hard to do, but so much about how they're interacting is like the dynamic that you often see in any team, which is there's one person who's kind of trying to drive the process and and wants people to, you know, do it his way, but is trying to accommodate other views. And then there's somebody else who's kind of frustrated because they feel like their ideas aren't being listened to. Then you've got, you know, the John Lennon um, character or character person who um, feels, I, I think he's a little bit, disconnected because he's clearly very engaged with Yoko Ono and so he's almost you can almost sense that he's already kind of checking out and and moving in a different direction and then Ringo who's just I never have really given a lot of thought to Ringo but he's just such a peach of a human being he's just so adorable and kind of I think more than anyone else he's kind of in the moment and appreciating it and, and engaged with what's going on and seems to even at the time understand that it's really special but the the just the way the group dynamic plays out I think for anyone who's worked in a team of people in an office or on a film or in a band it's really really familiar absolutely and you also have to remember that they lost Brian Epstein not long before this Brian Epstein had been their manager for about eight years or seven years or something i'm not sure exactly uh, again i used to know all these details and i've forgotten them but he had been their manager he had been their driving force their guiding light he had been sort of you know driving how things should go now obviously paul mccartney was really you know instrumental in the construction of um sergeant pepper uh he was also a, a driving force in the white album uh, and the White Album, by all accounts, was quite a t- tough experience as well. I, I don't really know why. I, I've not, like the rest of us, haven't seen or read really many details behind the scenes there. 
But when you remember that, you know, Brian Epstein uh, had, had passed away only, I think, about 12 or 18 months prior to what we're seeing in this film, that's a big hole that's left. And I think Paul, who's clearly the band leader, he's clearly the musical, he has the musical bones in his body. He has the sort of the the experience and the and the the, the, the the sort of ability to 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 draw from and and utilize what he's learned as a musician. John Lennon clearly is a great musician, but he's much more of a um, a sort of an emotional sort of time bomb that's just bursting at the seams with great ideas. And you know, I, I think he also really respects the fact that Paul takes charge. But the fact that Paul takes charge obviously causes tension and you know and 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 that's difficult for different members of the band at different times but think looking back to the fact that they'd done sergeant pepper which was an absolutely kind of groundbreaking piece of work and they'd done the white album so how were they then going to go into these sessions and make it be better than all of that so there's that pressure as well as well as the fact, as I say, that there's kind of no one at the helm. You know, George Martin is standing back. Paul McCartney's trying to run the show but doesn't want to look like he's running the show. So he's trying to control his controlling side. So it's a it's a really interesting time that we get to find them in, in all this footage. The other thing, too, is they, they're aware that they've got three cameras pointed at them all day long, every day. So that's got to be testing, you know. I mean... Even in this day and age, it would be as well in the, in the you know, when we're all pointing our phones at everybody and filming everything and there's reality TV, so we're much more used to it. So, but even still, that would be difficult now, let alone back in the late 60s. Did you get the same sense that I had that Lennon was a little bit checked out? Because there was, when they were sort of in the studio, he, he was engaged, but Yoko Ono is very, very present all the time. <laughs> So present. Almost like on his shoulder the entire time. There were bits where she does things like reaches over and plucks lint off his jacket. Like she's just so there. She never says anything, but she's just really there to the degree that I was thinking, God, if I was working with a team of people and somebody's partner or my partner was just hovering the whole time, I would find it hard. And the moment where I felt like Lennon was really engaged and really kind of authentically with the group was when they did the concert on the rooftop and Yoko Ono's nowhere to be seen in that moment. Um, yeah, she, yeah, that's right. I think she, you know, she and the other partners sort of sat back a little bit while they did the gig. I, I agree with you. I mean, it's she's a she's a really obvious presence throughout that um, process, and you know, I, I think you know she's obviously been vilified through the years for breaking up the Beatles, and clearly that's not the case. But I do think you're absolutely right. I think that Lennon's fascination and and love for her has become the more dominant force in his life. Clearly he wants to keep making great music and clearly he did keep making great music even after the Beatles broke up. I mean, he even says, you know, if you're going to blame Yoko for breaking up the Beatles, then surely you've got to credit Yoko for all the great music that the Beatles made in, in, in their solo careers afterwards, you know, so it's a good point. But, but I do think she was very visible and I do think that when we see Lennon kind of, as you say, appearing like he's checking out, he's he's probably not really checking out. He's just he's just not as engaged in 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 this process in front of those cameras. And she's there, 
So it kind of, we're, we're all sitting back trying to sort of work this all out, you know, and, and as you say, you get to sort of observe them in a way that you don't necessarily normally. I mean, we see that great black and white footage of them in the early days on stage and mucking about and you get to see them at Shea Stadium and you get to see all the sort of the TV and the film footage that they've done. But there's something kind of raw and, you know, it's like you're just seeing them wake up each morning, you know. And and as you say, there's Ringo sitting back. I mean, you're absolutely right. He's, Ringo, I think, is on some level the most grateful to be in that band. He's, as we know, he's the last member to have joined the band. Um, and whenever you look at any interviews of Ringo in, in the years uh, subsequent, he's the most sentimental. He's the most nostalgic. He's the most with the tear closest to the eye at, 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 at any discussion about John or George or the good old days, you know. And, and I love that. I, I really do. Because I just think, you know, aside from what we sort of project onto them as being the greatest rock band or pop band of all time, you know, they were four guys that connected in this absolute whirlwind. And, you know, Paul McCartney's got a great ability to just keep moving forward, keep moving forward, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And he's so unsentimental for a guy particularly who's written such sort of pretty melodic, um, you know, pop songs, whereas Ringo just sits back going, Let's just keep playing because if we don't keep playing, I'm going to cry. I'm just going to cry. <laughs> Please, guys, just let's just get on because otherwise I'm going to cry. I loved you know? I had a little cutaways of him where one of the th- things I loved about him is um, the quality of his listening. He, he's a really intent listener when people are speaking and when they're talking about what they want to do. He's listening so carefully. And then. Except when he, except when he says, I just farted everybody. <laughs> yes. I just farted. Just thought I'd let you know. I wasn't going to say anything. But I just thought I'd let you know. <laughs> I just, all of a sudden, and you're like, oh, that's right. They're like teenagers. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Great. His drumming, too, is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting talking about his drumming because, I, you know, to me, any musician who has a unique style is a great musician. That that That's how, to me, you define a great musician. So It's like a great director. You know, you watch a Paul Thomas Anderson film and you know that it's a Paul Thomas Anderson, Anderson film. You hear Ringo drumming, you know it's Ringo drumming. No question. There's no question whether he's a good or bad drummer. He's, a, he's an amazing drummer because he has a unique style. And I think there was a very particular reason why they poached him from, from the band that he was in. Um, because they adored him as a person, but they also really respected the unique quality of his playing. And his, he played the drums not to back what they were doing, but to actually join in. I mean, he backs what they're doing, but he, he clearly has a part to play. As George has a part to play on his guitar, John has a part to play in his vocals and that those, song, those songs that he wrote. Paul has a part to play in the, the way he plays the bass. I mean, it's the same with any band, I guess, but ultimately they're four very strong individuals in their playing, uh, which, which clearly, you know, which clearly elevates them to the level that, you know, we, we now all talk about and not just now but have done for the last 50 years. You just know. as a total aside, I was telling you the other day how I was reading Dave Grohl's memoir and speaking of people's drumming styles, and I've always been struck, particularly when you look at um, footage of Nirvana, at how much... 
Dave Grohl thrashes the drums. Like he plays with really a lot of force. And the reason is because when he was a kid, before he was allowed to get a drum kit and he was obsessed by the drums, he taught himself how to play on pillows in his bedroom. So when he finally got a drum kit, he kept breaking it because he was he used way too much force because he was used to just thrashing his pillows. Well, it's funny, it's funny you should mention that because Monty, my little boy who's now nearly five and a half, is obsessed with the drums. He's pulling out Tupperware containers, buckets, whatever he can from cupboards around the house and smashing the hell out of them. There's bits of plastic flying all over the place. And I just thought, it's time to buy him a drum kit. So for Christmas, I bought him a drum kit. And he's now, I'm now trying to sort of teach him to play quietly. Of course, it's a ridiculous notion at, at, at the age of five and a half to play quietly. And you've got a Dave Grohl on your hands. Well, the, the clever thing that I did at least was to show him videos, like one, for example, of, of Ringo on the rooftop there with a tea towel over the snare drum and saying, that's what real rock and roll drummers do. They put tea towels over the drums. So, of course, I'm laying tea towels over all these drums he's got just to take it down about 12 or 15 decibels. Speaking yeah. of um, also when you talk about the roles the musicians played, the other person in this doco that just blows my mind is Billy Preston, who they bring in to play keyboards just yeah how he just elevates every song like unbelievably oh look he he brings you know he brings sort of sex to the to the band you know i mean they're a, they're a sexy band in a particular way they're not a kind of a rock and roll sexy band like like the stones um but but he brings a just a, a like honey sexuality to that to those sessions that that just kind of wake up yeah. you know in in a, in a way that wasn't waking up and 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 it's the perfect blend i mean clearly they'd worked with him before back in hamburg in, in back in the day uh in the early days and gotten on very well and he it's so interesting the way in which he actually slipped into those sessions literally into the room and you know he, they knew he was in town they, he came by to say hi he just sort of sat down sort of very casually and in a very smooth way and joined in on the keyboard and that's all his parts are really I mean they're, they're essential but there's a beautiful kind of sort of fluid liquid kind of quality to his playing which is just just so intoxicating. It's, it's and you can see sometimes they cut away to shots of um, McCartney in particular where he does something which it's it's that quality that really great musicians have, which is it elevates the overall sound, but it doesn't necessarily draw attention to itself in and of itself. It just works in the overall sound. And you can see at times he does things and McCartney's face just lights up at what it's at. Yeah. Yeah, and it just means that those other players, that George at certain times and that Paul at certain times and, of course, John at certain times can just lay off. You know, they can just, rather than trying to fill a hole, you know, during a song, because they don't need to, because Billy's there just doing some gorgeous kind of, you know, textural thing, and they just go, yeah, man. And <laughs> he goes like, I'll just keep going with this groove and you guys come back in, whatever, because Billy's got this, you know. It, it's, <laughs> what was your it really, it's extraordinary. His, his playing's extraordinary. What was your feeling like when, when they would be working out a song? Like, I think in episode three, George Harrison's, um, they haven't recorded Abbey Road yet, and so George Harrison's mucking around with this song, which is something. It's what eventually turns into something on Abbey Road. And he's saying to them, um, 
yeah, I've got this song. I've been working on it for about six months. And he, you can hear he's, like, he's absolutely got the bones of the song. And John Lennon's saying to him, and he's like, I just don't know what to say in the lyrics. And John's saying, just say anything that comes into your mind. Say anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She loves you like a cauliflower or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> she moves me like a cauliflower. Like they're just saying, just say yeah. anything to fill up the words. And it's, I mean, how did you feel when you were saying those kind of moments? Well, it's. A, I mean, I was feeling a couple of things because, as I say, I, I was a big fan of the Letter B film. I watched it a lot when I was younger. In fact, I, I think I still have a copy of it on VHS somewhere. I'm not really sure, but I, I know that I watched it a number of times. So I was, I was being taken back into that world that I'd kind of already known in a way, uh, but I was also now as a much older man sort of looking at this and respecting them on a whole different level for, for what they were able to create, and particularly because they were as young as they were. Um, you also have to add to the equation that you're watching them construct songs, well, I'm watching them construct songs that I know every note of back to front, so I know what they're getting toward. You know, I'm hearing them go, should it be this note? And, and I'm going, no, 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 it should be the D. Go to the D. Because I know they end up going to the D anyway. <laughs> so I'm like, like, wow, wow, that was the process they went through. And, of course, the other thing is, you know, as I say, we're watching six or eight hours of it and there's another 56 hours of it <laughs> that isn't there. And I'd be very happy if Peter Jackson sent me all of that footage because I would watch all of it a hundred times. Um so, so there's obviously, you know, many hours of them just cobbling this stuff together. And it was, it was great, really. I mean, I'm a, you know, budding songwriter myself, which, as, you, as you know, Lee. And, you know, the process of actually trying to express something, trying to express a song, trying to express a story, trying to express a narrative, I'm very aware that it comes to you in kind of cryptic, cobbled together messy ways for somebody as inarticulate as me i'm sure for more clever folk out there there's a stream of consciousness that is just you know i'm sure stephen fry doesn't cobble mess together i'm sure he just writes a sort of genius kind of phrase and you go right well print that nice one whereas i sort of cobble stuff together and i come back to it later and then i listen to it and i you know it's back and forth back and forth which you know just like the Beatles, Lee, uh, I, uh, I, uh, I do the same sort of thing. Well, so I think this is the beauty of the doco because I think that, I mean, the creative process as you describe it is, I think, what it is. Like, I actually, I don't think anyone, not even your Stephen Fryers, come out with something fully formed. And as we can see, not, not, neither did Paul McCartney and John Lennon. And I know, you know, when I'm writing, the first pass is hopeless and then you kind of chip away at it and you find something in it that works. And that was... Part of the beauty and the joy of watching it was that, as you say, we know the songs back to front. So when we hear them start working on Get Back or, or you know, Dig a Pony or whatever, we know what it ends up as. So when we're watching it, we bring this sense of it feels momentous when McCartney starts ripping out Get Back. Whereas for them in the room, they're just jamming. So everything is, you know kind of equal in their eyes although they will you know seize on a riff and go hang on that's got something and, and go with it so yeah the yeah of it is that you see that for all of the gems there's a lot of dross that's around you know that they kind of chip off well that's right i guess things are normalized i mean we we sort of watch it and go oh right so they he just sort of chugged away on like a g chord and then sort of thought it might be nice to go to a d chord and he kind of came up with that melody 
And that's sort of what I do, which is what every songwriter does out there. Now, clearly, it's about where you finally get to that makes the Beatles the Beatles versus, you know, anyone else. So, so that's the difference. But there's something really glorious about watching this because anybody, I mean, I, I, you know, unlike your friend Annabelle Crabb, who, who by all accounts found this quite tedious, I don't know if she's ever heard of the Beatles, but, you know, maybe she needs to get onto them. Probably. Wait, wait till I make um, Citrina Nirvana unplugged. <laughs> <laughs> but, but for some people, this is quite tedious. For some people, they watch this and go, "It's like watching sort of you know old fashioned Big Brother." I mean, I don't, I just don't want to watch it. It's but like get on with it. And sure, fair enough. If it's not your thing, absolutely, it's not your thing. But for me personally, and for anyone else who's a Beatles fan or some or kind of creative, I guess. You 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 take this on board with with such kind of um, excitement because there they are just kind of finding finding stuff and that stuff as we now know has gone down in history and is just just kind of gets better and better. I mean, I defy anybody who likes the song "Let It Be" to listen to the song "Let It Be" and go, "Ah, oh, yeah, I'm a bit sick of this now." <laughs> I mean, they play, funnily enough, today, right, you know, in the trailer, I'm, we're filming at the moment, and, you know, there's always a wonderful music selection going on. And Damien Lewis, who I, I just adore, who I'm working with at the moment, we've got sort of great kind of mixtapes going on of, of various things. And the Beatles came on and Let It Be came on today, and, and him and I just looked at each other and just went, I mean, how? Like, what? how? how? Do, 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 does he know? Like, does he realise what what this is doing to us. Yeah. And so we all just sort of stop for a moment. You know, it's like hearing the sort of the last post. You just stop and go, okay, you got me. You got me. And and I think that's the thing about Paul McCartney and John Lennon and George Harrison and Ringo Starr all together. You go, wow, there's a, there's a recipe there that undoes us. And not everybody, you know, clearly some people would prefer to listen to the Stones, you know, but... But I think for those of us who are affected by the Beatles, it, it, it's just the most incredible... It, it's, it's kind of frustrating because you don't quite get what it is. It, it, it undoes you and you're left sort of going, I love this, but I, I also... It's like, a, it's like a puzzle I can't figure out. So it, It's hard to describe the feeling. Like, I was noticing last night when I was watching part three that I was just smiling with a kind of... <laughs> it's hard to explain. It was like a smile that I imagine was like equal parts kind of wonder and thrill and also I honestly think love like when I look at them I just think I love you like when you know George Harrison I think also again because you're bringing to it we know how things turned out right so we know that George Harrison died and we know that John Lennon was tragically shot and that stuff so you're watching them and I'm watching them all the time just thinking you're all so beautiful I just I just love you you know and George Harrison just his manner like that kind of introverted sort of you know whatever it is that he's got going on and and also his clothes i mean that's the other thing that i just love like what they're wearing oh yeah oh my god (laughs) and i kept sort of thinking i was watching it and thinking are they wearing this stuff anyway or do they know they're being filmed today so they've popped on their best purple suit you know for the day i'm not throwing on a green kind of you know velour sort of jacket and some sort of crazy you know um, I don't know, South American sort of woven boots for the day, but they are. <laughs> Clearly, it was, classic, wasn't it? 
the film crew was a different well. era. The film crew in the yeah. fluffy kind of coats with their massive sort of sunglasses and stuff, just absolutely yeah. old. It's another time. I mean, it's it's obviously another time. But I do think that there is a magic, there is an absolute magic that, that has has emerged because of those four people getting together, yeah. A couple, just a couple of quick points before we wrap it up. Um, I also... They, uh, Peter Jackson and whoever edited it just did such a beautiful job. Like, there's so many lovely moments. Like, there's a bit where um, when Paul's first working out that rift to get it be and Ringo and George are sitting in front of him and watching quite intently. And as a, as a viewer, I think it's the first of the really famous songs that you get to see them pulling up from scratch. And so as a viewer, you're just feeling like, oh, my God, he's just getting Get Back to come out. And they cut away to Ringo and George, and George does the most massive yawn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, no, there's no question that, you know, Peter Jackson's going, I'm throwing it all in, warts and all hit, you know. I mean, he obviously... He obviously doesn't want to just ha- have the film that, you know, as I say, um, Hogg released, which is, you know, the more negative stuff. But he certainly doesn't want to go to the other spectrum either, at the other end of the spectrum either. There's so, you know. There's a bit where McCartney's on the piano and he's kind of got the chords of Let It Be happening and he's in the background, I think not even in focus, but you can just hear the chords of Let It Be. And George and Ringo are in the foreground talking to one of the producers and they're panic-stricken because they don't have enough for an album and they're saying to whoever they're talking to we just don't have any songs as McCartney's in the background playing let it be in the background yeah can anyone come up with anything decent for god's sake I mean what what's going on here it's just amazing I mean coincidentally uh the cinematographer Tony Richmond Anthony Richmond who who shot all that footage I worked with him in 1998 and I, I didn't realise at the time. I, you know, it was before sort of the internet, so I wasn't really, and of course I could have done my homework and he came onto the job rather late. We had another cinematographer on this film. It was Ravenous. It was the cannibal film that I did with, uh, with Robert Carlyle and our, and our cinematographer quit. Peter Sova, who'd shot Armadeus, um, he left the film after our director was fired they brought in a new director and then they brought in this new cinematographer, a guy called Tony Richmond, and he jumped on board and we went, okay, hi, Tony, right, well, let's get on filming the thing and we filmed the movie and off we went. And then, of course, years later, I'm like, hang on a second, he's the guy. He's the guy that shot all that foot. The Beatles, oh, my God. So I'm now, here I am in London now, actually saying to my agent, you've got to get me in contact with Tony Richmond again because I want to talk to him about all this, you know. I'm sure everyone wants to talk to him about it right now, but I can't believe I actually worked with him. So I'm, you know, closer closer to John Lennon than anybody. Can you, if you get dinner with him, invite me to come, please, so that I can come yes. in with questions as well? Um, yeah. Also, the people I want to know, I want to meet and I want to hear from, there's a couple. Um, George the doorman, who's basically playing in the, <laughs> the doorman, yeah. When they're playing on the roof and the police knock on the door. And I also, that policeman, I would love to know where he is now because they just do the most beautiful job in that sequence at the end where they use a split screen often and then sometimes a triple screen. So they've got what's going on downstairs at the door to Apple Studios with the police going, we had 30 complaints in half an hour. You've got to stop That's this. right. You've got to stop this. You've got to stop this. <laughs> Why is this music? Why is this music coming out of those windows so loud? Well, it's not coming out of the windows. They're actually on the roof. What are they doing on the roof? Well, you know, they're just playing on the roof. Oh, can we get up to the roof? And I just, I just love the way that everybody's like, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you can get up on the roof. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, just like drag it out. 
there's a bit near George the doorman, like they're clearly trying to delay it as long as they can. He says, um, oh, look, we can't, uh, we actually just figured out we can't get on the roof because the door to the roof is locked. And the policeman says, why is the door to the roof locked? And George the doorman right. goes, because it's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's just fantastic. I mean, I, I, I still, I still to this day sort of don't quite know how they got to that point of, you know, they had all these sort of great ideas about playing in the Middle East and sort of playing at some stadium in London and, you know, all these different places. And George is there sort of going, I don't want to play on the roof. I mean, really? And you can see Paul going, this has to lead to something. It has to lead to can't just be another album. You know, is it like, you know, how tedious are these Beatles albums that are being released? It's got to lead to something. And like it, it's it, that's what's sort of strangely frustrating about that experience and that film is that you go they, they don't quite know what they're trying to get to and it just seems like in the end well probably the easiest thing is just to go up that fire escape get up on the roof there and just play five songs twice each three times maybe and until the police tell us to stop <laughs> which in the middle of january 1969 i mean it's i mean i'm here now in you know january in london it's bloody freezing outside and you see john lennon going my fingers are freezing up yeah, he's it was blowing his times to try to get them going yeah. I find it interesting too the because most of the time we've been watching them in the studio and then you know that's kind of i guess live the concert um Something I think about a bit, even in what I do, is how much live changes the energy versus something that's pre-recorded. And it's just because the stakes are higher. Like, for example, Paul Keating, he will never pre-record an interview. He always wants to do it live because he knows it brings a different energy and a more intensity. And that was so... Like, I think hearing... It's pretty brave. It's pretty brave, isn't it, to actually know that that energy, like, yeah, I'm going to go with that. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. So, whereas when they're... When they're on the roof, I feel like, and, you know, it's, it says on the screen, some of those versions that we're hearing is what's actually appears on the album Let It Be. I mean, there's no doubt some of those versions of what they're singing is absolutely the best version that we've heard, even with all of the difficulties of being on the roof and it's freezing and all of the rest of it. And it's because of that just elevated energy that is brought to it. But what but what's interesting is that there's sort of there's no real audience. I mean, there is an audience on the street, is it sort of inadvertent audience, and there's a couple of people who've climbed on top of other rooftops around. But and yet they they clearly you know once you go outside and you plug your gear in outside and you kind of look at each other and nod and go, okay, here we go. There's 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 that's right. There's a safety barrier that's gone, and so it does become. I guess it does induce that sort of that live. We can't muck this up, even though they obviously mucked up a few things, and you know we love them for it. But you're absolutely right. There's there's and and clearly they practiced those songs now for a couple of weeks leading up to this. But there, it's like they needed that. It's like they needed to get outside in order to 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 give it the energy and the life that has ended up in a lot of those songs. It's it, it's so exciting, isn't it? I mean, it, and what an incredible moment for all those people down on the street in Savile Row who just happened to be going past at the time. And there's that one guy's like, no, well, you know, they're not the same as they used to be. Yeah, it's a bit too loud, really. And they're like, man, listen, fella. <laughs> so you look back at this now and go, oh, yeah, I look like a bit of a knob. I'm yeah. that policeman thought watching it back, if he's still alive. Yeah. 
Well, he was interviewed recently. I actually caught a bit of a clip of him. Yes, I'm not sure what it was on, but he was sort of interviewed going, oh, no, I was never going to shut it down. That was never my... We just had to sort of make the threat, you know. Like, mm-hmm. Okay. He looked about 18 going, okay, I've got the biggest band in the world playing their first concert in about five years and I'm supposed to shut them down because some knob down the streets complained about the noise, you know. Imagine when they got home from work saying to their, you know, how was your day at work, honey? Oh, how was your day? Worst day. Oh. <laughs> yeah, John Lennon. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> well, thank you very yeah. much for letting me nerd out and, um, and talk about this in, at great length and in great detail. I mean, you know, I know what you and I are like and we could probably go on for 11 hours and have like some marathon Beatles session, but we might inflict that on the... Um, on the punters. On the listening public. Well, that's my absolute pleasure, um, Lee. I could nerd out on the Beatles as long as you like. So by all means, call me up again if you need some more. You know, if you need to indulge. And, and sh- maybe I should say, I hope we pass the audition. Yes, that's right. Thanks, folks, and I hope we pass the audition.